The biggest users of water are really clear. Almost half the water in the United States goes to electricity generation, goes to making electricity. So there is literally a little invisible water pipe going to your computer and your big screen TV and, and also, of course, your, your refrigerator and your oven. But we use an incredible amount of water just in the electricity we generate. If there's no water, there's no air conditioning. If there's no air conditioning, there's no server room. And guess what? In the modern economy, if there's no server room, there's no money. Because all the money in the world is in the computers. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. I'm Marcella Cavallero from Esri, and I'll be your host for today. You just heard New York Times bestselling author and business journalist Charles Fishman talk about the power of context for business continuity and risk management. Today's smartest companies understand that context and data are critical to competing more intelligently and innovating focused customer outreach strategies. Here, Esri CMO Mariana Cantor investigate how smart businesses leverage context in the age of advanced analytics. Charles, hello and welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. True or false, has there ever been a time in business when context has been more important? And either way, what makes you feel the way you do? If you look back at, at great business people 100 years ago, right, a, a, a really good um, grocer, a really good dress shop owner, those people knew their customers, they understood their community, any kind of, we, we kind of uh, romanticize and, and, and have great admiration for those, for business people before the era of national commerce and before the era of national chains. But those people, of course, were all about context, right? You didn't, you didn't sell uh, dresses or hats or shoes that didn't match the community and was in the community that didn't match the people you were trying to appeal to and keep happy. And, and it, even when I was a kid, my mom in particular loved having a dress shop and a shoemaker and a butcher and a bookstore and a bakery. And she would walk in there and they would know Mrs. Fishman and they would not only know what Mrs. Fishman liked, they would also know to occasionally suggest something because they'd known her for five years or for 15 years. And so really smart business has always been about context. Walmart, which is the largest business in the history of the world, bar none, there's never been a bigger business with more employees, more revenue, more outlets. Walmart has always customized the selection in stores using data and computers and the pace at which things sold. So this idea that if you run a, you know, a, a national grocery chain or a national sporting goods chain, you sort of think, is tennis important here? Or do people play handball or are people runners? Walmart has always done that from the very beginning. At one point in the 80s, there was literally no organization in the world that had more computing power besides the federal government of the United States except Walmart. Walmart was number two only to the federal government of the United States, and they were using that computing power just to ask questions about context. How is this store different than this store? What do people buy there? If we move it this, you know, if we change the display just a little bit, does that change everything? 
So I think smart business people have always understood that context, the setting in which they were operating, was absolutely essential, not just to being successful, but to, but to being successful the way you want to be, by charming and pleasing and delighting and serving your customers. And so I, I don't think context is more or less important than it ever was. I think it's just that now we can ask so many more questions about the context in which we operate, and we can get all kinds of answers. And I think that raises a whole different layer of questions, which is you can have, it's not that you can have too much context, but you can be distracted. And so you need to make sure you're paying attention to the right things that are going to actually help you and, and help, your, help your business. That's fascinating. There's so many threads you bring up. One is that context relates to a personal relationship. The more you know about a given situation or a given person or a given customer, the better you can serve them and the deeper the relationship. And it becomes a lot more difficult in this day and age where we have incredible scale and complexity in terms of the number of people, the number of businesses, the amount of data, and so on. So I'd like to hear from you a little bit about what Walmart did to get from scale to context, from complexity to focused understanding of their customer needs. Well, if you go, if you go all the way back to the, the beginnings of Walmart, Walmart is founded on just a few really small principles. The, the, the biggest business in the history of the world is built on just a couple ideas. One of those ideas is that people buy a certain set of things every week, every month. They need laundry detergent. They need milk. Uh, they need uh, uh, deodorant and toothpaste. And, you know, they don't they buy toothpaste on a slightly different cycle than they buy laundry detergent, and they buy laundry detergent on a different cycle than they buy um, athletic socks. But there's a, there's a set of things that, that are kind of what we would today call consumables that, that people want, shampoo. And Sam Walton wanted to offer those things in his store at a price lower than everybody else was offering them. And he wanted his, his commitment to his customers was he would have what you wanted and it would always be just at least just a little cheaper than everybody else. And he did that by making his own operation as lean as possible. And so his commitment to his customers was if you come in and we're carrying the shampoo you like, it's going to be a penny or two less than you're used to buying it and it's always going to be cheaper. And so he, he was trying to build a relationship with his customers based on the idea that he would have what they needed and it would be cheaper and that that was true for everything. One of the things he used to say early on was that for Walmart to spend a dollar on its own operation, it had to sell $30 worth of merchandise. So if Walmart wanted to build a facility that cost a million dollars, it had to do $30 million worth of business with customers, which of course is you know, the lifetime spending of a lot, a lot of customers 
just to spend that one million. It's a perfect example of context. It's a perfect example of saying, here's why we're careful how we spend our money, not just the prices on the shelf, but we got to do a lot of business to make the kind of money that we want to spend. And so from the very beginning, again, without using that word context, Sam Walton was thinking about how to serve his customers and what context you might say they were living in. That brings me to the question of how does location, knowing where something or someone is in time and place, contribute to context and decision-making? Well, I, I think location, of course, is really important. Let, let's go back just for a minute to Sam Walton. I don't want to spend too much time on Sam Walton. But when Sam was first starting out from store number 100 to store number 1,000, Sam would often pick the locations himself. He had a pilot's license, and he would go up in a little single-engine airplane, and as time went on, he would haul his executives with him, and he would scout locations in new towns in Kansas and Missouri and Texas and Oklahoma from the air. He would circle around in, a, in his little plane going 80 miles an hour and watch the traffic patterns and watch how people moved around the town he was thinking about going to. And that wasn't the only way that they picked store locations. And of course, as I'm sure you all know, and as I'm sure some segment of your customers are intensely focused on, where do we want that quick service restaurant, that next outlet? Where do we want that athletic wear store? location is, is really, really important in, in retail. And there was Sam Walton in 1968 and 1974 flying around in his airplane trying to gather data and a sense of geography and a sense of how people in the community accessed their community, literally, how they moved around in order to pick the right location for a, for a Walmart store. I was always impressed. There, there are some things about Sam that were less that were less admirable, but I was always impressed with, with his ability to sort of see over the horizon in some of these interesting ways. Well, let me just say one thing about Walmart and context that I think is really important not to leave out. Walmart missed the boat, of course. If, if Walmart had been on their game in the right way, there would be no Amazon, because the year that Walmart had a billion dollars in sales, Sears had $30 billion. So Sears, when, when Walmart first became a serious player, Sears was many, many times larger. And if they'd been paying attention, they could have outcompeted Walmart, but they didn't because that wasn't their DNA. And by the same token, Walmart.com has existed for 17 years or 18 years. And Walmart.com has had, I think it's, the count is now four CEOs in five years, in the last five years. But Walmart.com is literally as old as Amazon.com, and yet in that segment of the business, in the online segment, Amazon is more than 10 times the size of Walmart. And so Walmart missed a really important element of context, which was what was going on outside the stores. I mean, obviously, geography really matters. We all... We all exist somewhere. So the digital world has made geography in some ways more important and more relevant and more accessible. 
you don't live near a particular store that you want to shop at, if you don't live near REI, even if you don't live near an Apple store, you have liberated yourself from the geography. So I think in, in a lot of businesses, geography is no longer a limiting factor. And at the same time, we live in the, you know, we live in the golden age of, of mapping and geography and understanding the relevance of all that data. And those two things are, are, are different sides of the same coin, right? The ability to understand how the world looks at a really granular level helps REI or your local water utility do their work better than they would have been able to 20 years ago. You just gave us a really interesting perspective on retail history from Sears that is just avoiding bankruptcy or has it avoided bankruptcy to Walmart and as you said uh, cycling through four CEOs recently and not keeping up with Amazon. What are some lessons learned of why in this particular industry companies that are foundational and have gigantic market shares lose throughout time? What a great question. I think that the lesson, in fact, is exactly what we've been talking about. The lesson is that you need to understand the context in which you're operating. And, and you need to be humble. You need to not be arrogant about customers' commitment to you. You need to be committed to them. Sears didn't understand how the context of people's shopping was changing, and they weren't paying attention to it. And to be honest, Walmart made exactly the same mistake. It's not Walmart that's had four CEOs in five years. It's Walmart.com. Just their digital business has really struggled. And it's struggled because they haven't understood what Amazon is offering and to whom in the context of the business that they themselves are in. And so I think what happens is people who are really smart and really innovative and are running really smart, really innovative businesses think that they have a lock on it. And they even may think they have a system for understanding and never missing what's going on. And so I think the hardest thing for business people to do is redraw the lines of their own business and their own uh, operations. If my business is cable TV, you know, digital streaming doesn't look like the future. It looks like disaster. And so you, you hang on to what you're doing so well with, and in the end, you may end up out-competed anyway. Better to out-compete with yourself than to let somebody do it to you. But that is so hard to see. Well said. I want to turn our attention to one of the books that you wrote, The Big Thirst, in which you talk about the relationship or our relationship to water, and you make the argument that business must look hard at the issue of water because it is a risk factor, regardless of the type of business you're in. So can you share your line of reasoning as to what makes you say that? Water is this remarkable hidden resource that people don't account for. At one point a few years ago, I was at a, a big water conference, 
and I kept seeing people from Wells Fargo Bank. They were they, they had name tags. I, it was an event at which I spoke, and then I always liked to wander around, speaking of contacts, and talk to people and find out, you know, what's on people's minds. And I kept seeing these people with their Wells Fargo name tags. There, there must have been half a dozen of them, and I finally broke loose and, and cornered a couple of them, and I said, this is an event about water innovation for companies and water utilities. What in the world are you guys doing here? Are you providing finance for this? And they just laughed and said, no, we, we operate in, I, I, I'm not going to get the number for, for Wells Fargo, right, but we operate in 40 different countries. We have big bank buildings in downtowns in all kinds of places, often in sealed skyscrapers. If there's no water, there's no air conditioning. If there's no air conditioning, there's no server rooms. And guess what? In the modern economy, if there's no server rooms, there's no money. Because all the money in the world it's in the computers. And so we're here to understand not how to loan money to these people, although we'd be happy to do that, and, and, and we will take back some intelligence about that for meetings like this. We're here to understand what operations of our bank are at risk and where geographically and what that's going to look like. And is there a chance in, you know, Cape Town, South Africa, we've seen just in the last year. There are all kinds of places in the world where water all of a sudden seems to become a critical resource. Our, our computer server rooms have always got to work. Which industries are the biggest consumers of water, and what are they doing to manage this resource? It, it is amazing how you drew finance to computing to water as a critical resource. But what other industries... I mean, look, the, talk the, biggest, the biggest users of water are really clear. Almost half the water in the United States goes to electricity generation, goes to making electricity. So there is literally a little invisible water pipe going to your computer and your big screen TV and, and also, of course, your, your refrigerator and your oven. But we use an incredible amount of water just in the electricity we generate. The second largest user of water in the U.S., is food production, and food production in the, in the world is number one. And so I don't, people think of food in, in the context of water all the time. They don't often think of electricity, but those, those two places, you can't run the world without energy and food. And so there are all kinds of hidden uses of water. Your, your iPhone is packed with computer chips that require an extraordinary kind of water in extraordinary volumes, and you can't make computer chips without that water. And so uh, computer chip factories are huge consumers of water. Every time you punch enter on a Google search, two tablespoons of water are used by Google just for that Google search. You think about how many times we, we Google search in the course of a day, you're using gallons and gallons of water just doing those Google searches because Google's using water to run its server centers. And so those things are important, but they're not nearly as important as understanding these big frame issues, energy production and food production. And climate change is going to be devastating to both those things because they require so much water that, of course, we've put our energy generation, our electric plants, our oil production, our gas production, 
and we've put our food production where the water is. And you can look at a map and say, well, ah, wheat production is just going to migrate from Nebraska and South Dakota up into Canada. And sure, that's true. The water will move, and so the farming can move. But wheat doesn't produce itself. People produce it. <laughs> Americans aren't going to move to Canada to keep farming wheat. And so this, these issues of, of, of water and of context and of geography are going to turn out to be really, really, really important in the next 20 years. And understanding where the water is moving and understanding what the right way to quote-unquote chase it or to do the things we've always done in the places we already are a little differently, a little more smartly, those things are going to turn out to be really, really important. You talk about water today is the water that we had at the outset of Earth's formation and the millions of years and billions of years that living beings have been on Earth, we have not created or destroyed water. So why is this an issue? Why should we be worried now? Well, that, that was one of the great revelations for me was understanding that all the water on Earth is all the water we've ever had. The water in the Pacific Ocean, the water in Niagara Falls, the water in Lake Michigan, all that water has been here forever since the Earth was formed. There's no geologic mechanism on Earth for creating new water or for destroying water. Biology sort of takes water apart and puts it back together, but you're not creating or, or, or dismantling water in, on any kind of permanent basis or on any kind of scale. So the good news is all the water we've got now is all the water we've ever had, which means it's all recyclable. That's the wonder of water. You use it over and over again. When you, when you take a bottle of Fiji water or a bottle of, of Evian, beautiful water from Fiji or from France and crack it open, it is all Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> it has been through the kidneys of the dinosaurs many, many, many times. Um, and, and so, but it's also the bad news, because if we aren't good stewards of the water, there's no way of creating new water uh, uh, if we get ourselves in trouble, not on a, any kind of practical basis. And so we have to take care of the water we have. If all the water we've ever had is here and we've got all the water we need, what's the problem? Well, water is really all about geography, right? It's not just do we have enough, it's where is it? And the time to be paying attention to those patterns, to be, frankly, mapping and understanding the geography and understanding how to make food production, as an example, more, more, more effective and more efficient with less water, the time to do that is right now. Are there places around the world where the issue of water will be showing up as a serious risk factor for business? Absolutely. And I think it's, it's really important for businesses and also for governments to kind of wake up to this. We're really used to taking water for granted. That's true in our own homes and in our own daily lives. We just turn on the tap in the developed world and expect the water to be there. But it's, it's just as true in a factory um, where, where the people who run the factory are used to just paying the water bill and turning on the water and they have a big pipe coming in. And, and so for me, the, the kind of revelation, the insight, the 
kind of aha moment is that companies need to pay attention to what's happening to water in their communities. They need to kind of ask two questions. One question, which might seem silly, is how do we use water? What do we use it for? And are we using it smartly? And a second question is, where does our water come from? The literal place that it comes from, and what's the state of that supply? Are we are we going to be in, you know are we going to be able to depend on where the water is coming from? And there are many 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 examples of this. A, a worldwide example is Ford Motors, which um, starting in 2000 set a goal to cut its worldwide water use per car in half over the course of 10 years. It takes a lot of water to make a car. It used to take more than 1,000 gallons. Ford is now able to make a car with, in some, in some factories, with 400 gallons. They've cut the amount dramatically. But they looked at their own operations, and they said, how much water do we use? We operate in 60 countries around the world. There are different water uh, settings in all those places and yet we make cars the same way. Maybe we have to adjust how we actually think about making cars to the local resource availability and think about our water supply. In the course of 10 years, Ford successfully cut the amount of water they used per car by a third, and then they doubled the goal and cut the time in half between 2010 and 2015. They again cut the amount of water it took to manufacture a car by a third, and they did it in five years instead of 10 years. So a car made by Ford today takes less than half the amount of water in the, in, you know, worldwide as it did 20 years ago. Water is so cheap that companies don't take it seriously. The smartest companies understand that water has become a risk factor everywhere, and you need to understand how you use it if you're going to understand your vulnerability to it. Your book, One Giant Leap, which is about space and the Apollo moon mission, um, the so-called untold story of how we did it, what has not been told about the story? You know, when John Kennedy said, we're going to the moon in May 1961, there were no rockets that could carry people to the moon. There were no spaceships that could carry people to the moon. There were no space suits for those people to wear when they got to the moon. In fact, we had no idea what the surface of the moon was like in, 19, in May 1961. There, there was a distinguished uh, uh, astronomer who thought you would find six feet of dust on the moon and it would be very hard to land safely without becoming trapped. And we didn't even know how to fly to the moon. We literally did not know what the right way to navigate to the moon was. That required 18 months of debate after May 1961 within NASA to come up with the right technique for flying to the moon. So the most amazing thing about the story is that when, when President Kennedy said, let's go to the moon before the decade is out, we didn't know how to do any of the things we needed to do to do it in America, in the United States, and in the wider world, we've forgotten how basic everything was when we said go to the moon and what an incredible achievement it was. The, the computers that flew to the moon would, would fit in a roll-on bag 
for a, you know, a standard roll-on bag that we take onto an airplane. Those computers were the smallest, fastest, most nimble computers that had ever been invented. And those computers were designed on computers that were the size of rooms and that did not even operate in real time. MIT used punch cards to design real-time computers that the astronauts needed. And so it, it's a story of this extraordinary goal and the power of the goal itself. Fascinating. So from impossible to legendary in eight years. Charles, I'm very much looking forward to reading your book. And thank you so very much for a fascinating conversation today. What a great conversation, Maya. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. And thanks to Charles Fishman for explaining how smart companies unlock the power of context for business advantage. To learn more, download our free ebook, The Science of Wear, Discover the Value of Location Intelligence Technology at go.esri.com forward slash location intelligence.